Why don't we just start and we'll muddle through? All right. <laughs> 45 minutes later. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you have a lot of editing to do. Yeah. yeah. Okay, go for it. All right. So this week we're talking about upstream and downstream, and it seems like a little bit of an odd topic. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think it's a pretty interesting one. Do we have to introduce ourselves? Well, we're getting to that. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and it's this is Margaret. Hello. And I'm Adam, and this is the third episode of the Tree Planters Podcast. Understanding of upstream headwaters, downstream small, small tributaries, but uh, where I came across it first, and maybe you came across it at a different time, was when Dave Meslin's book um, mm-hmm. Tear Down was talking about social change and how there's different types of groups that are on the ground trying to solve problems. Some are focused on more downstream. Um, solutions and some are upstream and he explained it with this story I don't know where it originated from but a river by a village and this child is going down the river and someone jumps in and saves a child and Mm. then another child comes in and someone else saves a child and throughout the day these children are coming down the river and finally someone says well shouldn't we maybe go upstream to see why the children are falling in and prevent future ones from falling in so it his his whole thesis with this was that people are very keen to get involved in these kind of downstream solutions, um, you know, giving items to people, you know, that are experiencing poverty, whether it be food and not that those are bad things, but people feel very comfortable doing those kind of tangible activities, but they don't aren't as involved in these upstream preventative things, which are where the boring stuff lies, like the policies and democracy and, and voting and all that, that sort of stuff is, you know, the policy systemic change is difficult. But if people could understand that, yes, we need some of these downstream solutions, but we need to be focusing more of our attention and money to upstream preventative long-term systemic change, most people be inclined to do that. So that's, I wanted to talk about that. And Adam and I, you know, agreed that really it's a reflection of what we're trying to do here and um, just have that conversation about what type of solutions do we need going forward. Right. I mean, it's, it's, there's another quote that I came across uh, very similar to that Meslin one in a journal article titled witnessing social injustice downstream and advocating for health equity upstream was the trombone slide of nursing by uh, Adeline Falk, Raphael and Claire Betker. Um, And the quote was, I believe it would be unethical for me to keep pulling bodies out of the river without trying to fix the bridge. Mm. Right. Yeah. Very similar. And that's, uh, I mean, we have an interview with 
a public health nurse. And so she talks a lot about those social determinants of health and how healthcare has kind of taken an upstream versus a downstream approach, right? Right. And our, I mean, our focus is largely sort of environmental. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if we've actually really talked about sort of an understanding of what the environment means, what to be an mm-hmm. environmentalist means, but really <laughs> that's episode four. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but really, I mean, it is sort of having an awareness of your surrounding more mm-hmm. or less. The environment is what you're in. And I thought that uh, a big part of the reason why we're so interested in doing what we're doing is mm-hmm. that we believe it's, it's healthy. Like it's, right. it's, you know, yeah. it's good in other words. And, uh, it was interesting doing a little bit of research for this episode um, a lot of what I found actually came from the public health sector mm-hmm. and specifically actually, and I don't know if it was Google sort of messing up my results based on where I'm sort of searching from. Uh, but a lot of it was, uh, specific to Canada, uh, or not necessarily specific to Canada, but a lot of it was holding up Canadian research and Canadian examples as leaders in this area of looking at upstream solutions to downstream mm-hmm. uh, symptoms. Really. Right. And I think the public health sector, yeah. people can understand it. I mean, if the major cause of uh, heart disease and cancer is sugar, I mean, a part of that upstream is changing that the nutritional uh, intake of people, changing the values, changing label. There's helping people. And Naomi says on her interview, you know, the idea is to try and make the healthy choice, the easy choice. And so I think in a, in a health context, it's really easy to understand upstream and downstream because you're like, well, if we just stop people from smoking, figuring out ways to make a healthier choice, the easy choice, then all of the social determinants that go with, you know, smoking would mm-hmm. reduce. We'd have less disease. We'd have less healthcare costs, you know, less cancers, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. With an environment though, aside from the from the analogy with the river, it's like really upstream down to how do you balance that? Because, you know, I think about upstream solutions for the environment. I'm looking at policy a lot and most environmentalists probably are not looking at policy all the time, right? Not that they're not, but that they're focused on. I I wonder with the environmental movement, if we have moved to more of these kind of downstream things like save this particular bird, save this particular turtle, save this particular piece of land and it's very isolated and it's, it's a, it's a one-off. Um, it motivates people because it's a very specific, tangible thing, but are we actually addressing the root causes that have caused all of those fights to come up? Right. And, and so I wanted to have a discussion that there are organizations like ours that are working on upstream solutions, but I almost wonder if within this sector, if we have gotten used to kind of downstream and that being the, the status quo. Well, I think that, that there's a, a, a characteristic of the whole upstream downstream policy nexus or, or, or whatever, we're trying to affect change upstream, you're getting right at the apex of where power, the mm-hmm. power levers are. And mm-hmm. that's, th- those are areas where there's lots of suits and lots of ties, lots of money mm-hmm. and, and big stakes. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of, a lot of people who lobbyists, right? They spend Absolutely. their entire careers very focused on implementing, on, on affecting change at that level. And so I think it's hard to do. Probably it's pretty hard to do, and also the stakes are big, right? If you make if you if you make a wrong step at that level, then the consequences cascade. Absolutely. Uh, which we which we see, you mm-hmm. know. I think that that's the result. I think of a lot of poor decisions that have resulted in things like climate change, and then conversely at the at the downstream 
you know, it's fairly easy to see an immediate uh, effect of, right. a, of, you know, something that you might do. So, for instance, giving somebody who is sleeping on the street a sleeping bag mm-hmm. or, um, you know, something like that, a sandwich or whatever, rather than sort of trying to address why they're sleeping on the street, mm-hmm. which is a far more difficult and complex question. Or trying to pick all the plastic out of water rather than stopping plastic the going manufacturing into water. And the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's an interesting dynamic of how changes affect and also probably where a lot of environmental I mean it's something that's talked about a lot how people feel feel powerless to mm-hmm. do mm-hmm. stuff with especially with regard to climate change and yeah. a lot of environmental problems and it's an easy it's an easy thing to say well all you need to do is uh, whatever you know buy an electric vehicle Mm-hmm. And that might be one of the bigger examples, but mm-hmm. but you're not really actually addressing the root cause of, of mm-hmm. climate change by doing that. I mean, you're taking a couple of steps there, maybe, but yeah. Well, and to your point, you said about how the, where the suits are and the money and the the influence. I wonder too if everybody's just gotten used to the downstream because those are the easier choices, mm-hmm. right? When I think about what we're trying to do, not necessarily that we're great at, but what we're trying to do is is advocacy. And advocacy is a little bit different than the downstream things because you really are trying to get at that root cause, whatever it happens to be. And maybe there's a, a cause on top of that cause, but you're mm-hmm. starting somewhere at a systemic change, right? Yeah. And so going in line with what Dave Meslin's book, Teardown talks about, about those power structures and how people have been kind of told this isn't your place. You know, your place isn't in the back rooms. Your place isn't in policy. Your place isn't in government. Your place is on the street, in your community. That's where you affect change. And not that you can affect change. I'm not saying that. But one of the things that, that led me to start what we're doing was working with our local um, community and starting to get in touch with all these other types of communities who are fighting the same battle over and over and over again. It's like, you know, Groundhog Day (laughs) every single day of the year. And I'm like, at some point, you spend so much time and resources and energy doing the same thing over again, that what if you went back a little bit further? Where are the things, where are the avenues that make those things happen? And how do we have to change that dynamic? Or how do we change those policies or, or change our involvement? And that is the stuff that's hard because to your point, when you campaign on something to say, hey, protect X mm-hmm. or let's ban Y, it's tangible. Mm-hmm. It's a short term, ideally it's a short term, one year, two year, maybe five year max. Mm-hmm try to talk about policy. One, people don't really want to hear about it. And two, it can take you a very long time to get a policy through, right? Mm-hmm. It's not it, it's not the same thing. And, and it's, I wonder if it's, it's gone in with, those, with politics as well, that four-year cycle. How much upstream stuff are they motivated to do? Because there's nothing that they can say, well, these are all the results of this policy. They may not see results of those policies for years, right? Right. Yeah. And it's a difficult, again, back to that the fact that it's a difficult thing to do, so you potentially are rocking the boat more than you want, uh, given that you're up for re-election in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. There's a really interesting, uh, I find it really interesting aspect to this, which is the personal choice, personal freedom. Mm-hmm. If you are implementing a policy upstream, it affects so many people, it's kind of all-encompassing, then in some respects that the question 
could be asked, well, aren't you limiting people's freedom at that, you know, rather than sort of allowing that to be dealt with at the downstream level on a more personal. Hmm. And I think that it, it, it probably has a lot to do with the type of policies that you're implementing. And it, because I think also you'll get a sense of this from the interview with Naomi, but good upstream policy is policy that enables people to make the right decisions. Right. And that has a lot to do with providing them with the right information, removing the systemic barriers. So for instance, an example would be cars, you mm -hmm. know, using cars, mm -hmm. uh, which we know are problematic on multiple levels, mm -hmm. pollution, time spent, you know, that could otherwise be Infrastructure, productively, yeah. Yeah. the amount of money that we spend, etc. But there's, you know, barriers that are enabled that are fostered enabled i don't want to use that because we're sort of using that in the other sense but there's barriers to getting people out of their vehicles mm -hmm. which has a lot to do with the way that we develop with sprawl yeah and and, and not focusing on building these complete communities so enabling people to get out of their cars in other mm -hmm. words in providing people the choice okay i don't want it or you know we want to be a single vehicle family we want a vehicle we want that sort of option mm -hmm. but we don't want to have to own multiple vehicles vehicles for our kids when they reach 16, 17, whatever. We don't want to have to spend an hour or two mm -hmm. in the car each day getting to and from work. We want our schools to be nearby so we can walk yeah. uh, our kids to school. We want our jobs to be nearby so we can bike or mm -hmm. walk or take public transit or whatever. I mean, there's options there, right? And that, yeah. those are policy changes, as an example, that the governments can implement upstream. Mm-hmm that provide you know people with the ability to make the right choices mm -hmm. to make smart choices right mm -hmm. i mean they're reducing their money uh spent on vehicles and etc you know by leading healthier lifestyles as well we're reducing mm -hmm. the money we're spending on health care etc well and yeah absolutely and to build on that like naomi mentions in her interview about how people that are from higher income brackets tend to live longer mm -hmm. right making healthier choices is more accessible to them mm -hmm. right and so think about plastic, for example, okay? So we have tried very hard in our family to reduce the amount of plastic that we consume. We've moved away from single-use plastics, reusable plastic bags. We've tried to buy more whole foods and less like packaged food. But at the end of the day, mm -hmm. plastic is still in our life. It's, it's, there's only so many choices that you can make within a system that's faulty to begin with, right? And so some of the policies I see being put out are focused on, well, give people personal choice. That is assuming that everybody is able to make that personal choice. I know I'm privileged enough to be able to not have to go to get packaged food exactly, or go to the food bank, which, you know, has lots of packaged food and not really healthy food. I, mm -hmm. I recognize that th that's a privilege for me to be able to reduce plastic. It's not the same for everybody. But when it, when you get these policies that are like, everybody should be able to have a choice about whether they, you know, buy this type of plastic or that type of plastic, it's really only for a certain amount of people. And so these kind of downstream things, really what it turns into is, is the more downstream solutions for some of these more complex problems like climate change or, or um, plastic pollution is really accessible to a certain parts. So you need that upstream policy, right? And the personal, personal freedom that comes into it comes with with privilege and status. So I think people have to start recognizing that systemic change and kind of upstream policies are going to be really important to give everybody equal opportunity to make the right choice, right? Or I don't want to say the right choice because that's so subjective. <laughs> I'm sure there's people going like, oh my gosh, what is the right choice? Who determines what the right choice is? But maybe that's episode five. <laughs>
Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there'd be a number of considerations that would be wrapped into that. And I mean, Mm -hmm. because the right choice isn't necessarily what's right only for that Mm -hmm. singular self. Right. right? I mean, there's, there's a broader, and this is, I think where the environmentalism comes into context is, you know, there needs to be that consideration of the broader good, mm-hmm. you know, of the common good of the, of the, uh, of the, you know, of how your choices impact other people. Right. And that's not just in that immediate sense that what you're doing is sort of annoying somebody else, but it's also in the sense that while we pool money as a society mm-hmm. for things like healthcare mm-hmm. and the choices that you make in some respects, they have a cost on mm-hmm. society and, you know, there's a degree of elasticity that we build into that so that allows um, people to have actually quite a wide range of, uh, you know, they're able to make some pretty crappy choices <laughs> uh, and get away with it. And, you know, um, but that, that we goes have an to... excellent medical system that will help them out with, with continuing to make those crappy choices. But... but that goes into something that you uh, talk about quite a bit, which is, you know, people being um, self-involved. Mm-hmm versus collective good right and the idea that people are very individualistic and they want what's in it for me and what am I going to get out of it versus what is the common good and Mm -hmm. and how do we do that and I'm kind of thinking like as we talk about this upstream downstream what I'm starting to hear policy wise coming from various levels of government is um, you know downstream kind of policies that are formed on you're an adult you can make good good decisions for yourself yeah right and so yeah we've made it easier to access certain things but that's not really our place to say that's Mm -hmm. your place to say even if studies have shown increase of access you know to alcohol for example can lead to certain things it's that that downstream policy of like well i'm gonna give you guys more choice more freedom because really you're able to figure out environmental it's the same thing environmental because it's like i'm a landowner i should be able to decide what i do on my land and what i don't do on my land and what i farm and what i don't farm and you know what i do with with whatever i have again we're going back to these kind of like policies that are supporting individualist kind of ideals and putting away the kind of collective good because Mm -hmm. those upstream policies are what get at the collective good Mm -hmm. right and these kind of not saying downstream policies are bad but in in the political framework we're in right now i see there's a very clear dichotomy between common good upstream policies individualized focused downstream policies yeah right yeah i mean that's a that's a big thing that we keep on returning to is the this this emphasis on the individual mm-hmm. uh, as being a rational self-interested decision maker mm-hmm. and the self-interested in this context is a good thing like mm-hmm. they're they're gonna make the decisions that are the best for their their long-term well-being mm-hmm. pretty much or short-term whatever your time horizon might be but there are not i mean one of the things i i don't know if we have time for this uh, <laughs> we never have time for all the no. things you want to say i mean okay so uh for a period of my life i worked in social services part of this was doing um supervised visits for families that were in care or mm-hmm. whose children had been taken into care so parents who were experiencing a ton of stress and these visits typically happened in areas that were not conducive to having a good time as a family, right? So like a mm-hmm. windowless home mm-hmm. or sorry, a windowless room, room. Yeah. Um, in an office building somewhere or something like that. And you're sitting in this place with this person 
who, you know, you don't know anything, me, yeah. they don't know anything about me, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm there in this official capacity. I'm taking notes mm-hmm. on their Judging activities. Their, yeah. And there were a number of examples where the, in this, well, more than a number, this happened fairly regularly, where the parents would step outside for five minutes, maybe mm-hmm. once or twice or a few times during the course of an hour or two long visit to have a cigarette. Mm-hmm. Right. So you note that down and that's going to be sort of like a, going a, a against black, them. Yeah, right? black mark, yeah. But if you think about the context of that, and this is where these sort of the barriers to making these decisions for yourself, like the positive decisions and positive decisions for people that you care about, like your kids, the context of that is an incredibly stressful conflict. Yeah. And what do cigarettes do, when, especially if you're a yeah. smoker, right? You're addicted to this. They, they, they calm, calm you down. Yeah. Also, it's a coping mechanism, right? Mm-hmm. You'd see a lot of parents similarly doing some uh, zoning out a little bit on their cell phone. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that, yeah. That's a timeout, yeah. right? That's yeah. like, okay, you know what? I, I, I'm having a hard time dealing with this. Yeah. And there's probably better ways of doing it, but given the tools that you have in that context, mm-hmm. that's probably one of the best ways of doing it. Yeah, right? absolutely. And, and and I think that this speaks a lot to, to sort of the downstream environment is you're limited by the choices that are available mm-hmm. to you that you're aware of that you're educated about you know the biology plays about like you know it's like smoking a cigarette and if that's what you need mm-hmm. uh, to calm to your nerves then mm-hmm. that's not necessarily a bad choice no rather than blowing up at your kids oh for sure and if you think about like if you go back to the analogy of a river and imagine like a polluted river and imagine it you know the upper stream part there's you know, they all kind of go into this, this, this smaller catchment, if you will. And, you know, one part gets plastic thrown, another one gets garbage, another one's food waste. And downstream, it's like making the best choices with whatever comes down the river, mm-hmm. right? So in, in a great world or an ideal world for me, the only thing that's in that river are things that are going to make us healthy or make the world mm-hmm. healthy or equitable, mm-hmm. right? But what we're living in is a downstream environment where what I was saying about the plastic is that you can only make so much individual choice at that point mm-hmm. to really fight against the things that you're trying to work for. What, what it really requires is everybody to say, okay, let's make the best choices we can in the downstream environment. However, we have to start looking at some of these these things that are further up that gave us those conditions, mm-hmm. right? So I was talking to an MPP the other day about how we incentivize um, development in places where it shouldn't be, mm-hmm. right? So policy to protect if if people are aware of the Endangered Species Act and how that kind of got gutted recently in Ontario. And policy, it can be burdensome for development, right? It's more timely, it's more cost consuming. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because it de-incentivizes in going to places where it shouldn't be in the first place. Mm -hmm. So when you remove the policy threshold, You're just basically saying, well, you have a forest here that's really important. It's cheap because it's not agricultural land, right? And it's not really close to town, but you don't have as many policies to go through, as many hoops to jump through. So you could buy the really expensive farmland that's going to probably be developed in the next two years, uh, or you could buy the really cheap forest, which doesn't cost anything to pretty much grade. You're just like chopping it all down. And the policies there are about the same. Mm -hmm. So why would you pick the more expensive? Mm -hmm. And that's why we have to make those choices, the healthy choices, easy choices, whether it be socially healthy, environmentally healthy, economically healthy, um, 
those kind of things, we have to put burdens on some things. Personally, mm-hmm. that's how I feel. Because otherwise, people aren't logical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're not going to say, I've read all the research. This is actually makes sense. I'm going to pay more for this food. Or I'm going to, you know, avoid doing these things even though it feels good. Right? Yeah. And unfortunately, we're, we're still not good at valuing those, what the environment provides. Mm-hmm. You know, like, so, you know, you're incentivized to make those, those decisions that give you monetary benefit. Mm-hmm. Though they may ultimately reduce the net uh, benefit to absolutely and that's why we're trying to push for policies that demarcate places that should be incentivized to build strong communities so there should be incentives to build certain ways for certain purposes in certain places it doesn't make sense that right now the way the system is is we incentivize communities that don't belong that are stranded that don't have the services that aren't equitable that take away ecosystem services and take away choice and take away choice right yeah. so we should be incentivizing development and growth and and community investment in places where it's needed and it's going to actually play into the to the larger the larger good and and making it very difficult to go into places that we are creating those communities that we know have poorer health outcomes, that have poorer environmental outcomes, that we know in a time of climate change and a biodiversity crisis, those types of communities don't work. So our thing is very upstream of like, how do we set aside the things that we know we need to keep and in turn focus or incentivize development in places or growth or investment in places that we know need it? Right. Yeah, I think there we're, we're we're getting close to there being a big shift in the way that people view these things. So taking away the choice, ultimately, then if you're providing those complete communities, you're providing choice to people. You're mm-hmm. and their lifestyle choices. You're mm-hmm. and you, you can choose. You know, I want to own cars. Fine, go ahead. Yeah, but I don't want to own cars. Okay, cool. That yeah. works too. You want a bike to work. Mm-hmm. That's probably going to work. You want to walk with your kids to school, or you want to walk to get groceries, or what have you. You have a multitude of choices that you're able to make. Everybody feels good when they're able to make choices about mm-hmm. things, when they have a, a, a variety from which to choose. And uh, I think that I think there's increasingly an awareness, at least from academics and forward-thinking policy analysts and, and mm-hmm. decision makers and, and things like that, that uh, these are the areas that are really attracting people who are key to the future economy, the so-called Richard Florida's uh, mm-hmm. creative class, mm-hmm. right? These are the people, they want to live in these areas where they're able to make mm-hmm. different choices mm-hmm. and they're able to have a multitude of choices. There's really, so we should probably move on because uh, we're blowing up our time budget again. I think we need to totally take back that 20 minute thing. <laughs> that was kind of your thing. Yeah. So I'm, I'm totally okay reneging. But uh, we'll move on to Naomi's uh, interview. Just before we do, one of the really amazing things that I found doing a little bit of research for this was this Ottawa Charter for Health Promotion. I you know, like I said, I consistently came across uh, most of the research in this area has been has some relation back to the public health realm. And this charter is really something else. It's from 1986, <laughs> an eight, a long time ago, but it's incredibly, I'll just read. 33 years old, is my math right on that? And I think so. So health promotion is the process of enabling people to increase control over and to improve their health. To reach a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, an individual or group must be able to identify and to realize aspirations to satisfy needs 
and to change or cope with the environment. Health is therefore seen as a resource for everyday life, not the objective of living. Health is a positive concept emphasizing social and personal resources, as well as physical capacities. Therefore, health promotion is not just the responsibility of the health sector, but goes beyond healthy lifestyles to well-being. This was partially acted on, but not fully, certainly. Kelsoprase. Uh, yeah, you got to wonder, though, if it had been fully acted on in 1986. As with a number of other things, <laughs> in the 80s. would we be dealing with? Would we be dealing with it? And I think your point about the choice, um, and it mentions it there, I think about my seven-year-old, who we now say, like, in the summer, you're pretty much responsible for making your own lunch and breakfast. Hmm. And so uh, some people would say, well, he would have the choice of all of the things in the pantry and the fridge, except his height is a limitation, mm -hmm. right? So um, yes, he could probably get a chair and take it over to the fridge to get the things that are healthy, but what's he going to grab are the things that are accessible to him, mm -hmm. right? And so I guess to, to wrap it into public policy, into that kind of upstream, really when you make all choices equal, people are able to make healthier choices. When you make choices only accessible to whether by class or race or, or gender or whatever, then you're only going to pick the ones that are accessible to you, right? Just like my son can only pick certain things. So we've had to rearrange the whole pantry so he can get at some of the things that we would prefer him to have, not that we have a lot of junk anyways, but um, that, that he likes to have. And I'm like, oh, so this idea that the more that we allow the free market to decide and, you know, what our choice is. Well, how much choice do we have in some of those stranded communities? How many daycare providers do you have? How many schools do you have in those types of communities? How many uh, choices do you have about getting to work? Mm -hmm. You don't. Mm -hmm. You have a car. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you probably have one or two daycare providers. You probably don't have a doctor uh, in that air, in that near vicinity, right? And the, some of those are a little bit harder to I, to, to see the outlines of, um, you know, uh, the fact that you there's a limited choice perhaps with respect to getting a family doctor or some of these things. But I think you could probably map those if you took a careful look at mm -hmm. it and see how policy decisions have been made to uh, mm -hmm. restrict those choices. Mm -hmm. A much clearer one obviously is needing to have a car because so many of our communities are yeah. explicitly designed around a car. They're mm -hmm. not designed for people. Mm -hmm. They're not designed for people. They're designed for people in cars. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's, that blows my mind every time I think about it. Mm -hmm. Why, why are we designing for cars? Um, I had something incredible. I was going to say, well, I was going to add to it with the choices was, you know, look at the, the so quote unquote housing crisis, which by the way, it's not a crisis. Hmm. It's a crisis for some people because the lack of choice is, especially in Simcoe County, when they're building, you know, over 80% of their housing stock is single detached family units. Mm -hmm. That's fine for people that want single detached family units um, that can afford them that need a car. But what about the choice for people that want to downsize? They want little bungalows. They want little apartments, condos. What about people that want townhouses or, you know, stacked townhouses or shared accommodations or rental or affordable housing? Those, So the idea that, uh, you know, we're going to get more choice by just opening up the same it's, thing, it, it's not, it's not true. And if people started to say, well, I should have the choice to, to pick this or that. Do you actually have that much choice? Mm -hmm. You have a choice of living in a stranded community in a, in a single detached unit in this community or in another stranded community, same, same place might be cheaper, mm -hmm. 
but then that's not choice. That's just like my son saying, I've, I've only made the almonds and the cashews available at your height. There's a whole bunch of other food. They're just not accessible to mm-hmm. you, right? Mm-hmm. We have to get out this idea that these communities are actually providing us choice. They're not providing us choice. Mm. Um, and Naomi. Naomi, we met at the Berry Public Library and sat down for half an hour, and she told me uh, about her um, experience of working in public health and sort of within the context of this upstream-downstream mm-hmm. conversation. Cool. Just a quick break here to plug our organization. The Simcoe County Greenbelt Coalition relies on support from listeners like you. We are a small nonprofit dedicated to expanding high quality protections for our green spaces, water, local agriculture. The flip side of this is we also advocate for communities that are built more efficiently. So maximizing quality of life, minimizing cost. Many organizations you may be more familiar with operate at a larger scale for instance, provincially or nationally. We, however, are focused just on Simcoe County. So by supporting us, you are supporting the forests you take your dogs for a walk in, the water you swim in, and the communities you call home. You are also supporting advocacy for our local agricultural system, but at the risk of shooting ourselves in the foot, we'd say you can best support local farmers by visiting your local farmer's market or buying direct from local producers. Head on over to our website, SimcoeCountyGreenbelt.ca, and there you will find a link that you can click on to become a supporter. Thanks. So my name is Naomi Wachoyak, and I am a public health nurse in Ontario. What does upstream downstream mean to you? Mm -hmm. So when we're looking at uh, interventions in public health and we're talking about working upstream, we're really talking about policy change, the underlying uh, systemic uh, issues that that need changing. And uh, downstream initiatives or interventions would be more things like personal skill building, ensuring that there is access to a particular program for a particular person, you know, sort of a one client interaction would be would be a downstream action where the upstream actions would be a policy that would change things for everyone Mm -hmm. in terms of the sort of policy landscape of Ontario what what's the predominant model Mm -hmm. what would you say policy generally sort of fits or addresses these days Mm -hmm. so I, I think there are general you know, upstream policies for, you know, example, a municipality may have a transportation system and so they would have, you know, that's for everyone and then it's an upstream intervention to allow everyone to have access to, to public transportation. But there are some things that policy may not have so that everyone can access it. So you, you may have, uh, you know, subsidies for seniors, for example, or allow um, certain sections of students uh, to have a discounted pass. So mm-hmm. so there are, there are targeted interventions to mm-hmm. make the service more accessible mm-hmm. for people who wouldn't otherwise access it Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. one of the things that we talk a lot about um, is complete communities and then how that sort of feeds into that accessibility Question. Absolutely. So the Public Health Agency of Canada, actually, our, our chief public health officer in Canada last year put out a report called Designing Healthy Communities. And com- Complete Communities was one of the things that she 
spoke to most. Mm -hmm. So complete communities, meaning that I can, you know, live, work, and play within walking distance of my home. Mm -hmm. So not only would you uh, increase physical activity every day by building that in um, for your daily work and, and chores and errands, but it increases social connection and decreases social isolation. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's really uh, an equalizer for everyone in a community to be able to participate fully. Mm -hmm. Because if I don't need to have a vehicle or I don't need to access even public transportation to get somewhere where it may take someone with a vehicle um, three minutes to get somewhere, but it takes me 45 because I have to wait. I have to walk to the bus. I have to wait for the bus. I have to ride on the bus. You know, so so I need to take that much more time out of my day to participate in my community event. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I lived in a complete community, um, we all have equal access or equitable access. Yeah, so com complete communities are, are a great uh, equalizer. Uh. One of the big distinctions I've been learning about as I've been reading, uh, researching this topic a little bit is the between individual choice. So, and we talked about this before I hit record on here, but placing the onus on the individual. An easy example might be, but I guess it's probably recently and probably still is a big example, smoking. Mm -hmm. uh, placing the onus on the individual to quit smoking mm -hmm. versus... Mm -hmm. I don't know what a what a social determinants of health policy might be that would address that, but it's also interesting though with a complete community and it looks like you want to circle back around to that question, but a complete community actually seems to offer people more choice, at least in terms of modal transportation. Ab absolutely. And that sort so of thing. you you get more choice. Um I can address the smoking as well, but mm -hmm. uh, the, in terms of offering your community choice, absolutely, because I may, if you know, again, if I don't have access to a vehicle or I don't have, you know, access to transportation, it's a weekend and there's a reduced service, uh, you know, and there's a weekend event, then then I really have you know, limited choice to attend mm -hmm. that event because it would mean many other choices that I would have to make about my day. Mm -hmm. It's not an easy choice. Mm -hmm. And so I, that's another thing that we um, say in public health that we want to make the healthy choice, the easy choice. Right. Because otherwise you don't make that choice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's too difficult. Whereas, whereas for other people, it, it, it's not as difficult to live a healthy life. And so it's, so they do. Mm -hmm. um, we, we know that people with, with higher incomes um, live longer, mm -hmm. have less health, less impacts on their health um, mm -hmm. because they, their, their choices are, are the healthier choices are easier to make and so therefore more frequently made mm -hmm. for, for people um, with higher incomes but in terms of the smoking and, and health determinants uh, there's many things actually that we've we've done at public health particularly around supportive environments so that it's a type of upstream um, intervention so I mentioned before that a lot of upstream interventions would be sort of overarching policies mm -hmm. but we also work a lot on supportive environments so we did a lot of work in public health around smoke free buildings mm -hmm. So if I live in an apartment building, you know, and I, and I don't want to be a smoker or I don't want to suffer the health consequences of my neighbor that's a smoker, you know, I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't have to. It's my home. And so we've done a lot of uh, policy work on trying to make the environments supportive for people not only to um, suffer the health consequences of secondhand smoke, but for those people who want to quit, they don't, you know, see or smell or, you know, smoking as, as often. Right. And so that's another um, piece of work that we've done. Mm. Uh, I'm just realizing that I mentioned social determinants of health, but we haven't actually talked about what that means. Yep. Could you could you describe what that means? Uh, sure. So um, I've seen it variously: societal determinants of health yeah. and social determinants of health. 
So I guess the social determinants of health from the public health perspective, it's just the broad range of factors that that affect the conditions in which individuals and communities live, learn, work, and play. So it's things like my, my access to health services, culture, race, and ethnicity, um, language, income, education, uh, all those kinds of things affect, kind of going back to the choice, you know, mm. really affect the choices that I have every day. Mm-hmm. So it's a key and foundational, actually. It's labeled as foundational aspect to public health practice in Ontario. And we're talking a lot about choices. And I mean, that seems to be sort of like core to this, like providing people access to a variety of choices, which they can then pick what right. suits them best, I guess, mm-hmm. perhaps. And ideally, I mean, I guess not in a... <laughs> Maybe that could go in the wrong direction. Yes, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, people can yeah. make unhealthy choices, yeah. too, uh, just because, you know, again, uh, I mean, the unhealthy choice is often the easy choice, actually. Right. Um, so the social determinants of health goes hand in hand with another concept called health equity. And health equity means that all people can reach their full health potential without disadvantage due to social position. So we can make sure that you know your your gender doesn't put you at a disadvantage for health that your you know your your language race or religion doesn't put you at a disadvantage for health mm-hmm. so that's a large part of the work of public health so um when we're talking about choice we do um we use something in public health called and it's you know it's jargon but it's it's what we label it. So it's called proportionate universalism. So we use that to address the health gap. So I guess what we do in public health is that we make our interventions available to the whole population, but with a scale and intensity that is proportionate to the level of need or disadvantage in specific populations. So I think we were talking about uh, educational attainment. And so you can have two high school students that are both given acceptances to a university, but one comes from a family where, you know, tuition and, um, you know, residence fees and food and books is, is not a problem and they are happy to be accepted and their, you know, their family provides the uh, financial resources for them to go to school. And then there'll be another student with the same acceptance where the level of grant funding provided uh, just isn't enough for them to to um, make that decision, that choice to, to go to university in that particular year and they need to maybe delay or, or make some other choices in order to pursue higher education. So it, it, in that instance, we provided an equal opportunity to two students. We provided the choice to go to university to two students. For one student, it was very easy to make that choice and go ahead and proceed. And for the other student, that choice faced um, delays and barriers. Mm-hmm. In terms of the policy work or advocacy work of upstream, downstream, uh, it seems like there's a bit of a, 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 a converse relationship. So making changes upstream at that higher level that then sort of filter down and have a broad effect on society. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 so you have sort of a small change perhaps, but a large impact mm-hmm, mm-hmm. versus downstream advocacy where instead of addressing poverty and housing you are handing out blankets which is not necessarily which not to say that that's a bad thing to do but that action is relatively I think the it's interesting how making changes at the upstream level can be very difficult yes but much um, more impactful but much more impactful versus sort of the downstream level is fairly easy to do but yes and so a really good example for that in uh, in public health and nutrition um, actually uh, is our work in food insecurity. Mm-hmm. And so we've worked a lot. For a long time, we would do uh, work on 
what you should donate to your local food bank, making sure that the food bank donations are healthy, doing food skills workshops with uh, food bank participants and you know so if only we could teach them how to stretch a dollar farther and to you know do more with their food and, and, and eat healthy and so what we've learned in the last few years is in fact the research says the level of food skills between households that are food secure and food insecure are very similar hmm. and the issue of food insecurity is one of, of poverty and we also know that uh, the most food insecure individuals use about 120% more health care dollars than uh, families or people, individuals that come from households that are food secure. So if, if you're not worrying about where your food is coming from every day, you, know, you access health care like everyone else. But if we ensured that people that are very food insecure had enough money to buy food for their household, we would the, the impact on that would be a reduction of 121% in terms of healthcare spending. So we know that those like one decision at the level of policy in terms of ensuring that we've got, you know, family supporting jobs and an adequate social safety net and and those kinds of things ensures that we reduce spending somewhere else to a large 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 degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's only healthcare spending. I mean, you can imagine that people living without enough to eat every day, what other things are happening um, in their lives and in their communities. They can't fully participate uh, in right. their communities. They don't, you know, have um, strong social support networks because you wouldn't be able to go out and share a meal with a friend if they invited you out to the coffee shop. You would. It's very, very isolating. To mm-hmm. You just don't have money, so you just don't. So, so there are many other issues for people who, who are food insecure, but in terms of impact and looking at the social determinants of health and looking at income in particular uh, for for food insecure people, those upstream income policies have a huge, huge impact. You would, you know, you would improve mental health, you would improve social health, you would improve community health, you would improve personal physical health mm-hmm. um, by providing more income to people who can't eat every day. Any thoughts about how to affect that upstream change? Mm-hmm. So uh, for public health, a lot of the advocacy has to do in Ontario. We've got a, an association of local public health units uh, in Ontario, so and they provide letters to the ministry um, or to various ministries um, in terms of advocacy from a health perspective and say, you know, we know that this is an issue of poverty and so... Um, a suite of, so for example, if the, again, food insecurity. So we, they, they, they do advocacy letters. We also, so not only do um, this public health do the advocacy, but we work with other sectors. And so we uh, have other sectors. So whether it's um, faith groups or other social services, we would love to work um, with employers. We know that employers are paying a living wage to their employees because they recognize the benefit to their communities for, mm-hmm. for doing so. They recognize the value to their business for having employees that are engaged and retained and and trained properly and excited to be an employee in your organization because they're compensated in a way that they can support their families um, with their job. So how to affect that change is to to share the, the, the benefits and the impacts of making that change across sectors and having multiple voices provide input 
to their local representatives that this is a policy that we would like to see. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's in the provincial toolbox to do so. So that's sort of where we have to kind of target, particularly for income. Mm -hmm. You know, if we're talking about other social determinants, we might be talking about something else, but it, in that instance. Right. Yeah. And that's a really, really big one, too, is yeah. poverty. Yeah. So the roles of public health in terms of um, the social determinants so are a couple of things. So that it's like the cross-sectoral action mm -hmm. and ensuring that all of the actors that could have a voice at the table have a voice. And then also to enable that voice, another role for public health is to assess and report. So uh, we do a lot of the, the data collection, the data analysis, the data reporting that not only sort of help people recognize the inequity that exists, but then to understand what uh, action needs to be taken to, to reduce that inequity. And we are constantly trying to uh, provide reports all the time. Every year there's the, we, we have updated reports on um, the health status of our community, very particularly paying attention to health equity. So, mm -hmm. so where a particular group may have better health than another, because of a certain factor. So whether it's, you know, we would report on age. So children are more affected by this than others. Or, um, you know, but this particular, this mental health issue, for example, that particularly affects 10 to 19-year-old girls mm -hmm. so that we can direct the, the intervention where it needs to be most targeted right. or the policy. So assessing and reporting is one of the ways that we uh, help uh, with advocacy as well as just leading and participating in that advocacy um, with our coalition partners. Mm -hmm. Yes. And and people can find these reports on the website. Um, the yeah, every every public health unit in Ontario is required to do the assessing and reporting. So it's it's in the public health standards for Ontario that your local public health unit will have some health status data for you as a local advocate okay. to to access. And they and they all have um, you know public information lines that you could call and and request uh, health status information on on a variety of topics. Okay. Climate change is another um, actually a hot topic for public health and in terms of especially, again, looking at that health equity lens, it, there's a lot of work for uh, vulnerable populations. And so what does climate change mean for our most vulnerable? And so there's a lot of work. Um, if Again, if you Google um, vulnerability assessment and climate change, there's public health documents that would come up to say, how do we how do we ensure that what we're doing for climate mitigation and adaptation isn't excluding or harming inadvertently? Uh, our most vulnerable and marginalized community members. Very interesting. Thank you yeah. so much for meeting. You're welcome. <laughs> My pleasure. Now we're back. Yeah. So quick wrap up. Quick wrap up. And, and I don't know if we have a topic for our next podcast chosen. Uh, I thought we did. Oh, wow. Well. Didn't we? <laughs> follow up We might. This? We might. Um, anyways, I think the, the purpose or the objective of today's podcast was to get each of us dissecting a little bit more of that upstream downstream kind of dynamic and where are we spending our time and our money and our efforts and uh, you need both. We're not here to say that you can only do one or one's better, mm. <clears throat> but I think to Dave Medlin's point, there's been a lot of focus on these kind of downstream symptomatic treatments, if you will, and hasn't been the same level of investment and care and concern in kind of that root cause initiatives right yeah one of the things this makes me think about is um, there was recently a proposal which was shot down very quickly but a proposal by one of the councillors uh, in Barrie to establish or to explore establishing a lobbyist registry right they are in place in some of the bigger cities right mm -hmm. certainly in Toronto I believe um, yeah and that strikes me as a pretty solid idea around sort of at least 
grappling with how decisions, because basically what we're talking about is how decisions and where decisions are made mm-hmm. uh, that affect all of us in our mm-hmm. day-to-day life. And decisions at the upstream level, very close to those who make those decisions, who make mm-hmm. the big decisions, uh, politicians, leaders, elected leaders, staff, and knowing who they're talking to, knowing who's applying pressure, that's key, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that strikes me as a pretty slam dunk idea for mm-hmm. for enabling people anyways to participate, mm-hmm. which, you know, maybe some people don't want. <laughs> Yeah. But in well, a democracy, I think it's a pretty pretty important But thing. I think there's another difference there too. I think the level of of information that you need at the upstream to make good policy, as some governments are finding out, in order to make good policy that really impacts and, and levels the playing field, if you will, is not a it's not a one shot business that you're like you can write you just write something and I'm you know, I'm the, the Mm-hmm. the CEO and I'm just going to create this and it's just going to work. I mean, you, there's a level of information there that I think most people would assume is reviewed, studied, examined, any other, analog- any other mm-hmm. uh, synonyms I can come up with. But generally that level of information isn't there. And so a lobbyist registry is again, another piece of, of information that's important to understand how we're making decisions and what kind of information. I mean, I'm not mm-hmm. against lobbyists because frankly, I am one, mm-hmm. right? I, I lobbyist is supposed to give information. Mm-hmm. It's whether lobbyists go beyond information and go into the influence category, which is a totally different thing, right? Mm-hmm. So we need to know when we're making up those upstream policies, who is actually providing the information and who is putting undue influence into mm-hmm. this to make the policy benefit a select few versus Right. Leveling it. Right. And, and are they only getting information from one, one source or, right. or, you know, a source that's clustered around particular, you know, right. interest rather than exactly. sort of getting a wider, wider spread of information, um, which down the road in the downstream area, if you see a lot of, uh, decisions that are made without good information, mm-hmm. ultimately there's a lot of problems mm-hmm. generally. Mm-hmm. Anyways, there's a lot of problems Absolutely downstream, there's- right? There's people who are pissed off with with how that decision is affecting them mm-hmm. because they weren't consulted. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't included. Anyways. Yeah, yeah. Some, some food for thought there. Yeah. And if, if uh, you have some thoughts or comments about today's uh, episode, then like tweet us, us, tweet us or Facebook. Uh, we'll be posting this podcast there as well. And we'd love to hear your own thoughts and uh, continue the discussion because I think if we all, just recognize we need to have a balanced approach. And I think Maud Barlow, to close it off, one of the things she said is, you know, it's not that individual actions aren't important. They are. But we're beyond the point of individual actions being the thing that's going to save the day. It's really what we need is collective action, right? So, yes, keep up with your individual actions. Keep recycling. Keep buying, you know, uh, sustainably produce, produce food, cut out plastic, whatever life choices your family makes. Um but really, you need to start focusing on where can we make collective change. And that's, we've got big problems to solve. And that's really where the, the sweet spot is now. Mm-hmm. We can do more together. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening. We'll see you Thanks. next time.